Welcome to Talk Cosmos, the show where Sue Rose Minahan and guests unveil astrology's ancient archetypes that continually build the collective experiences in our unconsciousness. Get ready to find your free will from your roots in the stars. This is my introduction. It, tonight is November 14th, 2020, and we are discussing a most amazing epic, the first epic, the first existing story, actually, that was written because it was during that cradle of civilization between the Euphrates and, uh, and rivers and uh, in Sumeria thousands of years ago called Gilgamesh, a ruler that was, de well, has been determined to have lived about um, in Europe as U-R-U-K, and it was about 4,000 B.C. Actually, some of my facts are a little bit off, so it's about 4,000 years ago, but the point is, is that what I was taking from my notes is that cities began about 4,000 BC. And so writing began about 3,500 BC. And that is like 5,500 years ago. And so the oldest existing versions of this poem date to about 2,000 BC. In Sumerian, it was cuneiform. It, it has all the elements of a true, not just a narration and a poem, but of epic dimensions giving us so many seeds of eternal thought and I could go on for a long time about it but yet that's the basis of this talk and I have a most wonderful guest tonight Susanna Beer Low Beer I'm so sorry again I need to get centered here and Susanna is a healing artist and a chemical creator and a Renaissance woman, being an acupuncturist, a silversmith, potter, baker, and musician. Now, that's a handful. In this multifaceted approach to her life's work through the lens of healing, Susanna's deep interest in astrology and passion for all things mythological and magical, Susanna has explored astrology, mythological astronomy, and astrological talisman crafting under the expert guidance of Gemini Brett, who has been on the program quite a few times and is actually following Susanna next week. Susanna married her love of astrology, metalsmithing, and gemology by creating these bestoke astrological talismans. These are very ancient and in a sense really speaks to the story that we're talking about as stone legends and she and I will bring that up in a cap into recap really Susanna believes life is art and an art is healing and whether crafting a talisman or teacup performing acupuncture baking bread or playing music the energy and attention is the same and you can reach Susanna at susannaarts.com she lives down in Portland hello hello Susanna <laughs> hi yeah, it's so it's great, great to be here. It is. And, you know, we met at that illustrious moment with Gemini Brett 
at the Great American Eclipse back in August of 2017. And it's most remarkable that now, here tonight, is the will be later here on the West Coast at 15, 17 minutes to midnight, will be the new moon in Scorpio, all about death and rebirth of our phases. And that we're talking about Gilgamesh, who was actually, his great drive was essentially in the long run about fear of death. It's true. Immortality, the quest, a quest for immortality. Yeah. I know it's it's so absolutely astounding that it makes a real connection I'm saying to our legacy of the of the consciousness because this this elusive factor of our spirit connected with nature and god and our physical body has been perhaps tormenting humanity since the essence of time you know it's 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 part of our light uh, real thought the story perhaps you want to begin with a little bit of what this story actually involves sure i'd love to give a quick summary of course it is an epic so that's always an interesting thing to try to give a quick summary of an epic tale but I think it's actually worth just reading. I would love to read just like the first little stanza of it. This is from um, the translation that I have by Andrew George, I believe. Um, this is, and this is also the, what's called the standard version. Um, and the reason I wanted to share it is just because it's kind of like a, it's kind of like introducing us into the world. Um, so, it is. It goes, uh, he who saw the deep, the country's foundation, who knew was wise in all matters. Gilgamesh, who saw the deep, the country's foundation, who knew was wise in all manners. Um, and then after a few more stanzas, it goes and it gives instruction to climb Uruk's wall and walk back and forth. Survey its foundations, examine the brickwork. Were its bricks not fired in an oven? Did the seven sages not lay its foundations? So um, we're, we're called to meet Gilgamesh, this hero, and to observe this wall, which he is given credit for building throughout the epic. Um, one more thing I wanted to point out just to get started is that um, when it it talks about Gilgamesh and his stories. Actually, when you are instructed to read the story, it says, read out the travails of Gilgamesh and that all that he went through, which to me speaks to the fact that even though he was a glorious warrior, he suffered a great deal and that his story can be summed up in suffering and travails. So even though these glorious deeds that we are told about him did happen. There's also this interesting thing. So to basically sum up, Gilgamesh was the king of Uruk, but he was abusing his powers and was um, doing things that were not very nice to his people. Um, one of the main things he was doing was sleeping with the wives of, of men before they got a chance on their wedding day, on their wedding night, he would sleep with them first. So, um, 
appar apparently some of the people thought this really needs to stop. And so they, um, the gods created a man who was his equal because Gilgamesh was a great warrior and very strong. And they created a man out in the wild on the steppe named Enkidu, who would be his equal. And essentially Enkidu, who was a wild man on the steppe, is then tamed by a harlot from the city of Uruk and comes down into the city and challenges Gilgamesh. And they fight together and wrestle and brawl until they mutually um, see each other for being equals and brothers and become the very best of friends and go on a lot of adventures. Mainly, they uh, decide to go and conquer the Humbaba, the god of the cedar forest. They, you know, harvest a bunch of trees from the cedar forest and um, they like build a temple and the city walls and they also um, kill the bull of heaven which is sent by Ishtar who makes a pass at Gilgamesh and Gilgamesh turns her down and so she gets the bull after him and then she um, she is defeated or the bull is defeated by Gilgamesh and Enkidu and then Enkidu actually falls ill um, he's not defeated in battle. He's not hurt by any of the monsters, but he actually falls ill and dies of illness. Um, and then uh, Gilgamesh really comes face to face with what mortality looks like. And it's not pretty. And he gets very scared. Gilgamesh, who was never scared of anything before, is scared to death of dying. And he goes wandering and he goes on a quest. He's heard of this. Uh, sage at the end of the world named Utanapishti, who has uh, the secret to immortality. He himself has become immortal. He's a man that's become immortal because he survived the great flood. And so after a lot of adventures through the wilderness, he eventually reaches Utanapishti. And um, basically, we, well, I'm sure we'll get into more of all the details of this whole story. I'm really summing up a lot. But Utanapishti tells him that, you know, it's it's you're not you're not gonna immortality is not for you and he's rejected and so he ends up leaving and coming back to where he started in Uruk and the entire epic actually wraps up with the same uh verses that's basically like here here we are on the city walls and here's you know it's kind of again it's like a beautiful spiral of a story that kind of ends up in the same exact place that it started with this kind of sense of like well, I mean, I don't want to say futility. It's not futile at all, but there is a kind of sense of like climb your roots, wall back and forth, survey the foundations, examine the brickwork. Yeah. It's kind of like nothing has changed. Everything really beautiful story in that way as well. Well, but that is a very I I um I I skipped a lot of my favorite parts of the story because oh, I wanted no, to no, try no. to get I, all the main points and. Susanna, I appreciate the synopsis because it is involved and there is a theme. All stories have a theme of as far as a plot, right? And so this is good. And so much came out. And whenever I think of the walls, because there's, you know, many times it's this is brought up. Oh, the bricks that we built. And to, to me, really, it, it constitutes the foundation. What is the foundation of your whole purpose? And often because you know, in this story, there's dreams that are related and the gods talk to either uh, Gilgamesh or to Enkidu. In and uh, 
describing, well, what is your purpose? Why are you doing this? You know, when you have this or you have that. And so, of course, as humanity, people concern this. But, you know, so when you said about abuse powers, I think to myself, here he was given, according to the rendition I read, which I, the George is, I think, one of the primary important ones to read in its full verse. He was the one that really, oh, I think, first translated all this. But I read a, various ideas of it, and then I finally read Sanders, which is more of her and her verbalization of it, but it gives a lot of the ideas. And okay, with all, oh yes, about the abuse of powers, is that he, you know, he was given again from the gods, Shumash, the sun, this great strength and beauty, and and the and not to teach all the different gods, of course, that they had at that period of time. But for what purpose? Because if he was doing it just for his own self, seeding the women of his children, not being, as they said, the shepherd over protection of his people, you know, that it really shows the first uh, um, descent of, of, of humanity's consciousness going, yes, lead us, but for what purpose? And for what purpose? Like, are we building temples just for the spirit of gods or are we part of gods? And, you know, all these questions. And, and I think that really speaks also to the ways in which civilized, quote unquote, civilization can lead to an abuse of power, how, how power can become you know, an end in itself, and it, it leads more to self-aggrandizement and um, corruption. And I believe that uh, that's one of these ancient stories that we're obviously facing today. You know, it, it's it's no yes. less relevant now, obviously, um, how, how power can corrupt and how people can become power hungry and really just get out of control and lose their sense of morality and, you know, caring for their people, caring, especially someone like a king, like Gilgamesh. And it is really fascinating how this wild man, Enkidu, from the steppe, um, from the steppe, from the wilds, who in my mind actually represents or really literally is our ancient nomadic ancestors, um, that Enkidu is a hunter-gatherer, um, tribes person from from the steppe, which is like this semi-nomadic hunter-gatherer population. And there's a lot of really interesting details in the story that support that idea. Um, and that his creation was a way for uh, Gilgamesh's power to come into balance. Yes. And how that how important that is and how important it is for um, nature and the power of our natural world and the natural systems to to be able to find a balance to culture, especially when culture itself kind of gets out of control and out of balance. Yes, there was a part there that said, um, as Enkidu was, quote, uh, started the process of civilization, and the way, of course, they did it was the merging of a feminine um, goddess, the energies of... of um, lovemaking and therefore the the deep intimacies that are shared through that through uh, learning to think more and 
not so instinctive, but eating. And they said too symbolically, like the bread of life and the drink of merriment, you know, with the wine and, and all of that, which disassociated him from the very uh, instinctual essence of nature. And it, this crops up again and again about so many themes that have since, when you think about it, come up with religion, come up with stories. It's just incredible. It's like this is the seed story of everything, like do unto others as you do unto yourself. I mean, brotherhood, you know, that's supposed to be, or this whole interaction between the female and the male that if you leave the 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 instinctive parts of nature and get these roles and then again it's not just in the physical it's really you can begin to think is it really more the uh, the energetic you know the solar the the, the lunar the um, receptive the aggressor part of all of us you know of creation but yet it's manifested in this female and of course there's a certain part where there's great lamentation later when he dies oh it was look what they 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 did to me which is interesting that um and enkidu would feel that way because it somehow it, it it not only is he part of the nature but it seems like he's also kind of a mix of the of the retaliation or not the not the um, higher self of us, you know, because even Gilgamesh had some compassion, but then he listened, and of course he killed Humbaba, the protector of the forest. Mm -hmm. um, one more thing I want to say about Enkidu and his creation, which I find fascinating, is that there's a couple times when he's, um, I guess Gilgamesh has a dream about Enkidu coming, um, and I'll quote again from Andrew George. It says, the stars of the heavens appeared before me like a rock from the sky. One fell down before me. I lifted it up, but it weighed too much for me. I tried to roll it, but I could not dislodge it. Um, and that is really fascinating because it sounds like a meteor, doesn't it? Yes. And that is uh, really fascinating to me to think about how Enkidu is some type of star being in a way or a comet or a meteor, um, you know, and I don't really know what to make of that. And I feel like I'd love to research it more. I was kind of, kind of, uh, but it really stuck out and made a lot of sense in certain ways that he would be represented in this dream in this way. Um, and I just wanted to also highlight how fascinating dreams are, um, the role that the dream plays in this entire story. It comes again and again as these moments, um, and particularly fascinating to me is a sequence of dreams that Gilgamesh has when Enkidu and Gilgamesh are on their way to the cedar forest. Um, because uh, Gilgamesh has a whole series of dreams that have to do with the upcoming battle with Mbaba. Um, but one of the things I wanted to just share that I find very fascinating is that um, Enkidu actually builds a temple, I would say it's not actually a physical temple exactly, but it is a special enclosure in which um, Gilgamesh lays down to dream. 
And uh, this really speaks to a very ancient um, sacred practice that was something for the ancient Greeks, the ancient Egyptians, as well as the Sumerians and Babylonians were these uh, sleep temples and dream temples. Um, and this is just such a fascinating area of study that I would really love to delve into more. But I would just say in the context of this, that the power of dream and the power of sleep was very, very, very sacred to these ancient people. So again, reading from George, and this is, I think, marked as um, tablet four, number 170. It says, Enkidu made for Gilgamesh a house of the dream god. He fixed a door in its doorway to keep out the weather. In the circle he had drawn, he made him lie down and falling flat like a net, lay himself in the doorway. Um, so I just wanted to share that because I think that that is so powerful. And I think that that practice of dream and sleep in a sacred enclosure and the prop, the prophetic nature of dream was very important to ancient people. And it is really inspiring to think about how even in this, this epic, this old epic, as well as thinking about them being out in the wilderness, they weren't like in an actual temple, but how they created it was almost like a mobile temple that they were able to create a sacred or like a vision quest almost or something, you know, it's like the sacred enclosure where they had these dreams. So I just wanted to share that as a really interesting It is. Piece. You're like the Delphi, the Oracle of Delphi. I believe on Greece was where people would go and they would stay the night and they would ha receive a dream. And so this whole energy gets carried further and further our society, maybe we're so busy, I think, with interruptions and and things that we think are permanent because the end of the story mentions with the wisdom, you know, when he goes to search for uh, the, the everlasting life, he is told that really that the world is impermanent, meaning that it's on a constant flux that what we do isn't always here and so our lives are like the gods are going to be eternally in that energy but our lives here are transitory but meaning like he wanted he wanted to leave his mark and so he did in the stone he left a story in a stone and of course earlier he crushed all the sacred stones and i'm thinking that's a lot like the talismans that you make that actually from way past you know when we think about it um humarabi or i'm not saying i'm saying his name right but the law of humarabi in um, ancient greece it was in uh that formulated a lot of the cohesive ideas of of civilized law you know so that people could get along but it's a way of caring further. And I, okay, the last thought thinking of stones, because that brings back again the meteorite or meteor from, from the star comes this rock that comes to earth. And in Sanders' edition, she has a prologue and she went on to say that um, it was too heavy and that, but nobles would kiss its feet. And the attraction was like the love of a woman. And that has been questioned many times it comes up. But yet I'm thinking it's that missing part of Gilgamesh. Here he's made like the greatest warrior and 
can overcome everybody and lead, but is he leading really in the right way? It's such a classic Leo sense. And, you know, like you were saying, manifestation without heart, without compassion for, for who we're leading, that other part, the seventh, you know, of, of, of the horoscope. So perhaps that's what that whole relationship was, is that because there is indication they became brothers through the mother who was also a goddess and would say care for um, Gilgamesh like a brother. And one of the other aspects of their Your voice is losing. which I find really fascinating. They're both. Is it? Can you not hear me? Yeah, it's sort of distorted sometimes. Try that's better. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, they're both hybrids. So we have Gilgamesh, who is apparently two thirds god and one-third human, and we have Enkidu, who is some percentage human and some percentage animal, and we're not really, there's, there's not a huge specification about that, but nonetheless, there's that quality of each of them that has this commonality of humanness, where Enkidu is the animal part of human, and Gilgamesh is the divine part of human and then they kind of meet in their humanity and learn to become human together i believe maybe herbert mason's translation i'll double check because that was another translation that i really enjoyed um and i think oh yeah so in herbert mason's translation which is probably similar to saunders in terms of it being a um a narrative that is just kind of knitted together in like a poetic story. So it, it's not a direct translation scholarly like George's, it's more of, but it's a very beautiful story. And um, so here's the, the first stanza of it. it says, Gilgamesh was the king of Uruk, a city set between the Tigris and Euphrates, Euphrates rivers in Babylonia. Enkidu was born on the steppe where he grew up among the animals. Gilgamesh was called a god and a man. Enkidu was an animal and a man. In this story, they become human together. Yes. And so that gave me chills when I read it. And I feel like that is kind of really a beautiful essence of their relationship and their kind of uh, different facets of the human experience and that their love for one another as brothers was that common humanity and that they complemented each other in these different ways to like round themselves. They were kind of incomplete without one another but their collective humanity kind of gave them a chance to grow into their humanness, whereas that's, apart, they were not That's perfect, Susanna. I think that's a actually ideal way to tie the essence of this together as we take a break. This is November 14th, the Scorpio New Moon tonight, and we're talking about Gilgamesh, the first epic of immortality and the fear of death as we transform we'll be back and i'm with susanna lopier portland thank you while we take a break from this week's edition of talk cosmos let's take a look at this cycle's archetype we are currently in the yin period of scorpio traditionally ruled by Mars, now ruled by Pluto. 
By departing a cycle based on comparison between extreme energies, finding balance, Scorpio commits a relationship to exchange resources, experiencing power and powerlessness for the purpose of soul growth transformation. As a fixed water sign that is extreme, intense, and secretively deep, Scorpio's passionate nature questions the psychology and mystery concerning life and death. Hello, this is Dr. Judy Zafrir. I'm a holistic psychiatrist in the Boston area and an evolutionary astrologer. And you're listening to Talk Cosmos on Alternative Talk, 1150 AM, where we discuss the meaningfulness of our roots in the stars. Alternative Talk, 1150, local talk for the body, mind, and soul. We're on this epic journey, and Susanna Lobeer and myself, Susanna's at SusannaArts.com, and of course you can go to Talk Cosmos and find that, and it's a perfect conversation because we're going through transformations, and the questioning involved. So with Gilgamesh, the king of Uruk in Sumeria, with his friend Enkidu, which actually might be a parody. I don't know if a parody is the right word, but a takeoff of Inki, which is the god of wisdom, I believe. So it's like little wisdom. I be, I wonder about. But they go on their journeys. Um, I mean, as you were saying, Susanna, the Inkidu was created in order to give to match Gilgamesh, so that he could. And that isn't, isn't that the way we have? And we have first house, seventh house, where the seventh house complements and reflects, and it's me versus other. And then even, you know, there's that polarity between all of them. It, the greatness of Leo, of manifestation, is also for the service of, of, of the group, you know, and et cetera. So these two, they go on this journey to the great forest and just thinking with a previous meditation group that I'm in that the forest you know it represents the great mystery doesn't it it holds the great magical beings it's that depth of unknown but it's material you know it's not like space with I mean you see things you see trees you see animals so it's this this embodiment right now yeah, of uh Great mystery. So they go into it. Are you? Yeah, I'm there. How is? Oh, okay. Are my? Is my? Uh, is my headphones better? Yeah, your headphones are better now. Yes, yes. I didn't want to interrupt it before. It's great. Yes, yes. Yes, I I found the aspect of the cedars and the cedars of Lebanon specifically one of the most fascinating aspects of the story and I really was inspired to want to learn more about it but feel like there's a precious little in terms of the Excuse me. Precious little in terms of um, information online that I could research, at least in the last couple of weeks about it. And so I was, again, inspired, feeling like this might be a uh, further study because the cedars of Lebanon were very famous in the ancient world and used for uh, temple building, ship building, 
um, incense offerings. They were very sacred trees um, and they were uh, very prized and precious. Um, and uh, I feel that, again, with Gilgamesh, it's such a fascinating story because I, I can say that there's no real clear answer in terms of morality. I think one of the things that our modern mind tries to do is to put things in boxes and say this is good or this is bad or they should do this or they shouldn't do that. But I feel that Gilgamesh is an epic really challenges that. And at least for myself, I've really felt a struggle because there's part of me, um, they were killing Humbaba who had been put there by the gods to guard the cedar because the cedar is sacred and the, there's the forest itself is a temple and the forest is a sacred place. And the idea that Gilgamesh just felt like it was a good idea to go out there and kill this monster and then, um, you know, take the cedars down. You know, to me, there's this part of me, the nature loving, um, respecting the spirits of nature part of me that felt yes. very horrified about that. But at the same time, I mean, Enkidu, while he initially was hesitant to assist, Gilgamesh ended up helping him with this task and then, um, the fact that they did cut down all these trees and then go to build these walls and these temples for the gods with the trees. Um, you know, it's like they were using them in a way to exalt the glory of the gods. And yet the actual act of killing the monster and cutting the trees down was a, an insult. Um, yeah. And so it's very, it's a very complex situation. Well, and one more thing I want to add about that before I close is that Enkidu on his deathbed has moments when he's having almost a conversation with the walls themselves where he feels betrayed by the walls because he, he's like, well, I, I put these walls up with these cedars and why did I even bother? Because now they're kind of the death of me. And in a sense, he's right. Um and so I just just wanted to add that also as another layer of complexity around the story. It's deep. It's very deep because the forest, from what I was reading, was of life and the resources. And there were splendors. There were seven splendors of Humbaba, this great, uh, terrible. And amazingly, when I say terrible, I'm repeating what I read. But in the human consciousness the, anything that was unsafe was really dreadful, which really thinking about the primitiveness of, of forging out protection in, in our natural world is not something that really in the 21st century we're all thinking about, although there's definitely areas of the world where we do and, and that. So, but it seems as though that there's a real clue there. I agree that looking through that confusion of the whole thing, because why did they go there? They went for their own glory. There was a lot of that. Gilgamesh wanted their names to live in eternity. And so there is just like, I remember with the Norse, um, the one of the culturally uh, strong features of ancient Norse, was that uh, cultures was that there was no greater honor than being at your deathbed and 
being hailed as a hero. And after you died, all the great poems that would be told about you. And it was so amazing to read this story and to see that generally that same theme is from the very roots at the beginning. Of course, the Celts that went to the Norsk are very old and ancient too. So really looking at all that anthropology, thank you. But lamenting it, this is right. And as I read more about Enkidu, when he was in the forest, Humbaba actually pleaded with Gilgamesh, oh, spare me. He didn't say spare me, but he said, grant me my life and I will be your servant and I will build you these things. Which really, when I thought about it, when they're building temples to the gods, it's like, why don't they just live with the gods of the higher consciousness? But everything had to be materialized as though that life was the most important and that's all where it lived. Instead of like you were saying in the forest where they made their own temple and in the simplicity of it, just using nature. So in other words, I think really in Endiku, who in this merging of consciousness between, as you say, man, or we said man, animal, nature, and man, God, nature, which is actually all three, right? I mean, we're the, we're the full spectrum of, of humanity was because Enkidu uh, said, no, kill Humbaba and all his servants. And I wondered somewhat, was that out of jealousy? Because he was a servant to um, Gilgamesh. And maybe he didn't want somebody else being, they didn't say that. There's so much that's lost in translation because to, to tell our listeners, these are from tablets from a library that was finally found by the British that were in thousands and thousands of pieces. How they ever put them together, I don't know. And they're still missing a bunch of pieces. So the story is not complete. <laughs> Are you there? Yes, I oh. am here. And I do feel like there is so much here. And especially the Cedar Forest episode, again, for me, really rings as a very important part of of the whole story because of that tension between, you know, the sacredness of nature and how the forest itself can be a temple, as we know. However, using those trees in a way, um, again, you know, we think about our humanness and our opposable thumbs and the things that we like to build and those buildings being monuments. And that is a huge theme in Gilgamesh. I mean, again, just the beginning of our story with the, the walls and the, the bricks, you know, and then thinking about just the idea of a monument. Um, and this is something that I think a lot of scholars and poets and other people have really latched onto in the story of Gilgamesh is just the testament of poetry as a monument. Um, and just kind of that interesting kind of tension is, is like maybe even after all of the even after all of the walls have been broken down by time, the story will still be told and how the words themselves are yes. uh, like a monument and a story. Yes. Um, and it's just interesting how that is kind of laid out in the poem itself and how it's spoken. You know, it's like, look at these walls and hear the story. Um, so I feel like even 
in those words. And it actually does come up throughout the whole epic itself. Poetically, those ideas are being uh, contrasted. They're being laid out before us and kind of displayed. And I feel, you know, again, thinking about Scorpio and the new moon and just this, this energy of, of death and decay and just thinking about immortality and the things that make us immortal. Is it, is it a monument? Is it a physical structure? And is it something that we can actually make or build? Or is it more of, of, of the energy of what's told? Is it more of a story, like um, which is yes. ultimately the thing, you know? And that is, um, again, it, it's something that is really beautifully explored in the Gilgamesh epic, for sure. Thank you. Absolutely. And when I think about it, that's where this written stone at the very end, he finally writes it in the stone. And whether that was added or how that was added. But the fact is, is that, yes, the story is what we can make and recreate. And what's amazing is that this story has lasted because there's essential parts of it and that words are tools and symbols, you know, and, oh, back to the forest. Okay, the god Enlil of wind and was also one of creation, it seems much, that of, of had gave after he, after Gilgamesh killed Humbaba, was, Enlil was enraged. And he took the blaze, which I never quite understood what the blaze was, but I guess Humbaba had a blaze and would... And that, so there's a lot missing that still needs to be looked at, you know, from like reading this, because it's not a quick study. It's like, oh my gosh, there's so much. But he took that blaze and it said, uh, and the seven splendors, which were gone once Humbaba had been killed. And he gave the first to the river, the second to the lion, the third to the stone of execration of the mountain. And the third to the daughter of the Queen of Hades, who is, I think, Erishkadel. I could never say her name quite right. And again and again in this story, it seems like the, the eagle of Scorpio, the lion of Leo, the, the um, waters, well, the, the, the um, stone of Taurus, and then uh the river you know of of aquarius of 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 the being poured it's those four it's a fixed cardinals i mean the not fixed cardinals what am i saying the fixed axis um, of the of the zodiac and and this energy that is repeated again and again like one of the the monsters and 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 I never really like to think of the word monster whenever I read now the word monster I think well that's just a way to say that it's like an alien energy that's unfamiliar because it had a hand like a talion of an eagle and uh, um, other other features that are just abnormal that we don't think of as normal but is that wrong it's so symbolic. That, that is that's that is very symbolic actually yeah. that really brings that idea of a monster and the ancient origins of that word actually are um, interesting because the original word itself wasn't necessarily 
something with negative connotations. It really actually more uh, pointed to something that was a hybrid of other things. So we think of that as, you know, something like a griffin, you know, it's like a magical animal, like a centaur or griffin or something, or even just uh, something that's a kind of an abomination, like something bad or scary. Mm -hmm. But um, in a lot of ways, we can think of Enkidu and Gilgamesh also as having those qualities of being hybrids of gods and humans or animals and humans. So, So this idea of hybrids and that concept of them being something monstrous and having that being a bad thing it really has come down over many many hundreds of years in our language um uh as like having negative connotations whereas initially the word itself and kind of some of the um mythology around the world word is not necessarily uh negative and it's very interesting that the cat the catholics still have the monstrance which is a um it's it's a relic that they look at uh it's a vessel that that's used in in the church as an object of uh worship and so it's it's very it's a very interesting thing to look at that uh it, you know, it's like a receptacle where the consecrated host is exposed for veneration. And and that, you know, again, I, it's kind of a side note, but it's also very fascinating to think about. It and it, it, especially in the context of this story where we have our two heroes as, you know, in some ways monsters because they were hybrid. They were beings that were and, not, you know, not perhaps, just human, not just God, mm-hmm. but and, hybrids. And as we had ended in the before the break that you nicely put together and that is so strong here in this story is that I feel is is really a purpose of it is this unification of all our parts and to understand our own place because there is a legacy there is obviously the word it is a tool that manage I mean it was always the oral word and then it's the written word and the written words might even get to be more difficult because it loses a lot of its symbolism at that time, things, you know, every word that we consider has such dimension to it. Now, it's a whole process. Um, what was I? Oh, again and again, I'm looking at this note. And I don't know if this was quite how this was verbalized in the actual translation. But it is, how shall I find the life for which I am searching? Now, isn't that really the essence of so many uh concerns and teachings and uh, addressed in so many different ways in our whole mentality, our consciousness, our heart, our soul. And, you know, the old man uh, that did have, that was with the flood that managed to find the seeds of life and continue them said there is no permanence, you know, that well, and, and that is so interesting in itself, too, because um, I know that Gilgamesh, on his searching for immortality, especially after the death of Enkidu, when he was really afraid of, of corporeal death, that he, he was told by gods, as well as the innkeeper and others in the story, like, you will never find that life that you are seeking, that you are a human, and the gods gave humans death. They kept, they gave themselves immortality and they gave humans mortality and they you know it's like this very clear like thing they're saying you are a human you have death and you're seeking something that is not for you 
And yet somehow the interesting part of it for me that I keep coming back to is somehow through his seeking, he did achieve some type of immortality That's because it. we're yes. talking about him right through now. Through the word, through the word, through the stone, through the story. And it is so strong. In fact, I go back to it also um, Uric. He says that it was one third garden, one third city, one third field, which is, a, you know, it was such a you know, certain kind of balance in there. And that, um, uh, oh, oh, and the tunnel. Remember when he is going to try to find, I mean, this isn't a linear conversation, folks. I mean, because we're, it is a, in depth, you know, okay. So he met, he meets in, in Deku, and then they go to the forest, kill Mbaba, and then they also kill the, of the heavens because Ishtar, the goddess of love and war, uh, throws herself in this story. Now, interestingly, if we look at, and I didn't go back to the tunnel that I was going to talk about, because at the point is they kill uh, the bull of the heavens and, and all the, this conquest, this and partly in Deku, supports strongly Gilgamesh against some of his own thinking of, because he is part God, it's like, well, should we do this? And the nature and the man that doesn't have in this, because they're not linking together nature and God together. Somehow they're separating all this in order to try to understand the instinctive with the higher consciousness, maybe of, of, of thought, bringing it into consciousness. And of course, in Kitu ends up, being sacrificed as the one that has to die because Shumash, the son, can only spare one. And Gilgamesh kept making all this uh, um, vows and uh, to, with with the son, saying, "I will follow you if you will protect me." So it, they go through the tunnel. He's following the paths of the sun through the darkness, twelve leagues. And as I listen to that, I think that is the horoscope. It's going from the houses, the 12 houses, back to where the sun rises again. It's just incredible. Now, whether that started at the fourth house and went, you know, at the cusp of the IC and then comes up and goes around again because the death, or it's, I'm not sure where it goes. Oh, boy. Lots of threads here. I know I lost a few, but lead on. <laughs> well, there's, there's always going to be more threads to to pick up but i will i will say that um one of the things that we haven't really touched on which is so fascinating about this story is that it is um some people really believe it's it's kind of a living story link to the pre-deluge story because there is the story within the story when gilgamesh makes it all the way out to the ends of the earth and meets utanapishti to ask Utanapishti how to become immortal, Utanapishti starts to tell the story of the flood. And this is the first known story of the flood um, that uh, is recorded, at least on tablet form. It is a very uh, ancient, you know, of course, the story of the flood is, is one of the most ubiquitous, powerful stories that we have as part of our early human mythology. And so... 
sorry, excuse me. And so I feel the story of the flood as told in Gilgamesh, the epic is um, really, really like, it's like a link. I feel like Gilgamesh is kind of like a living link. Um, and he's even portrayed that way in the um, literature and in the stories afterwards, that he's this kind of like speaking to Utanapishti, who was actually, you know, the Noah character. He was the one that yeah. built the Ark, which is actually described in very specific detail. And there's a lot of interesting scholarship that's kind of an offshoot about the type of boat, which people say is a round boat. I think it's called a coracle, um, which is another, again, this is just kind of a side note, but it's so fascinating that the Gilgamesh, some of the fragments of the Gilgamesh story actually describe the boat and how it was built in enough detail for them to come up with some very uh, scholarly theories on what the boat actually looked like. And it was actually a circle. Um, and that is, you know, again, we could spend the whole episode just talking about that. It's fascinating. But all of that is to say that Utanapishti was himself a character that witnessed the flood and lived through the flood. And Gilgamesh got him to tell the story. And then Gilgamesh brought that story back and it was written down on clay tablets for us. So it's just this amazing link to an ancient past that, that you know, like the flood story itself, um, proto-historical though it may be, is a very, very powerful event in our human history. And it, it's a really wonderful thing to, to think about Gilgamesh as being this um, link between the pre-deluge time of humanity and the, the after-deluge time of humanity. Yeah, because the part of this, it is extraordinary to consider, like, what really is the meaning, which one can begin to surmise, as I do, but then I, I it, it's a process of communication, because you think, is that really what it is? Because at that time, there was, according to this story, Babel. You know, we have the Babylonians, the Tower of Babel. That, In other words, it's dissent. People were not unified. And perhaps that's partly what this story is saying, that for us to be unified with our entire self, our physicality, we are, we are a body, everything is form, manifestation comes from thought into form. And yet, where is that substance, that ethereal, as it's called, or the void, and all these other words that we try to symbolize and understand. But yet there is this, this life force that is still, still mysterious, even though we know black holes, and even though we know macro and micro and, and nano and all these wonderful quantum ideas, which are extending and expanding our sense of interconnectivity. But until we become whole and we don't split our emotions, our spirit, our body, understand our bodies a language, you know, and and connect to all this through dreams. <laughs> it's it yes, that perhaps there are manners of bringing us to our knees. and and so even here it is Scorpio. and so, possibly really opening our hearts and going into and learning forest, huh? and learning to be like Gilgamesh and see the deep because isn't that what Scorpio is all about is seeing the deep and Gilgamesh being he who saw the deep 
And it feels like there's so much more to talk about. So maybe we'll have to have another. I know. I want to read. Absolutely. I have four different copies here and I managed to read that one. It is really a lesson. Well, Susanna Lobeer has been with us tonight. Oh, and next week, as I say, Gemini Brett, we're all amigos from the great eclipse. And thank you so very much. Thank you so much. That's very magical. (laughs) And, And see the deep. We'll, yes. we'll all try. We'll try okay, and we love you all. Enjoy <laughs> uh, through thick and thin. Okay. <laughs>Thank you for listening to Talk Cosmos, the show where Sue Rose Minahan and guests unveil astrology's ancient archetypes that continually build the collective experiences in our unconsciousness. Be sure to tune in next Saturday at 6 p.m. to continue finding your roots in the stars.